You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. After a rundown of what to expect from our unsettled weather, KVMR's Julia Jem and historian Linda Jack recount more stories of the rich web of social, political, and educational institutions built by Nevada County's African-American pioneers. The California Report plums the mysteries of our state's high gas prices. Ever wonder why they go up like a rocket, but down like a feather? We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We start with severe weather. Plunging temperatures, high winds, and a lot of snow, sleet, and rain are forecast for much of California as winter storms sweep across the state through the weekend. The National Weather Service has issued a flurry of advisories, including a rare blizzard warning for parts of Ventura and Los Angeles counties. Meanwhile, in the Sacramento area, there could be snow at elevations as low as 500 feet. High winds have already knocked out power to tens of thousands of utility customers across the state, especially in the Bay Area. Caltrans and the California Highway Patrol say that people should be extra cautious while driving and pay close attention to local storm warnings and information about road closures and travel delays. In a legislative hearing this week in Sacramento, Governor Gavin Newsom's administration made its case for a controversial proposal aimed at reining in high gas prices by imposing a penalty on oil companies when gas prices and profits spike. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos reports. Newsom called on lawmakers to tackle the issue of soaring gas prices in September, but Wednesday's informational Senate committee hearing was the first real movement on the issue since then. And with details of the proposed penalty still undetermined, much of the testimony focused on what we don't know about gas prices, including why, for the last eight years or so, the gap between what California drivers pay at the pump compared to the rest of the nation has remained inexplicably high, much higher than the difference in taxes that California charges. That gap spiked in October to a record of more than $2.60 a gallon, says California Energy Commission Vice Chair Siva Gunda. And we currently do not possess the information to answer all questions to the levels that are asked by by people of interest. There is lack of complete transparency into how the defining industry operates today. Gunda told lawmakers that forcing companies to provide more information could help the state protect consumers from rapid increases in gas prices. Nicholas Maduros, director of the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration, says that additional information could also shed light on why gas prices at the pump tend to go up quickly but fall slowly, which is exactly what happened in California last year, even after crude oil prices dropped. In the oil and gas world, and you'll probably hear this throughout today's hearing, there's a saying for this behavior that gas prices go up like a rocket and come down like a feather. People say it all the time, but nobody quite knows exactly why this is. Oil companies and anti-tax groups are lining up to oppose Newsom's proposal. And on Wednesday, some lawmakers and outside experts question whether a windfall profit penalty could actually end driving prices up at the pump. But Maduro says imposing that penalty isn't actually the point of the governor's proposed legislation. This isn't a tax. It's not meant to raise revenue. It's meant to change behavior. The real goal, he says, is to prevent those wild, unexplained increases in gas prices from happening at all. For the California Report, 
Amarisa Lagos. Huntington Beach in Orange County is the latest city vowing to fight Sacramento over state housing laws meant to encourage more housing. The city council voted four to three this week to allow its city attorney to pursue any legal actions to challenge SB 9, SB 10, and any state laws that allow for lot splits and the development of accessory dwelling units or granny flats. City council member Dan Kalmick strongly criticized the move at this week's council meeting. I think that this item is an overreach. It's absolutely unnecessary, and there's no scourge of ADUs going through the community. This is a solution looking for a problem. But Huntington Beach Councilmember Casey McKeon strongly disagreed. The issue is a matter of local control. It should be incumbent on the the residents who live here to decide how they zone their city and if they want to allow ADUs, et cetera, and not have state mandates that pierce our charter protections and our local control and our home law. Now, Huntington Beach hasn't actually received a proposal to build housing under SB 9, which allows owners of single-family homes to split their lots and build up to two duplexes. SB 10 would make it easier for cities to zone for smaller, low-cost housing developments of up to 10 units. In a strongly worded tweet, the governor's office said California needs more housing and it's time for Huntington Beach to start acting like it. UC Davis law professor Chris Elmendorf, who studies housing regulations, says the city will likely face legal pushback if it does decide to sue the state. Uh, the attorney general has the right to intervene anytime the constitutionality of state laws is, is attacked. I would expect to see exactly the same thing happen if a city says it's not going to process a uh, SB9 project application because it thinks SB9 is unconstitutional. The cities of Pasadena and Woodside in the Bay Area have already unsuccessfully challenged SB9. During the winter months, researchers take to the American River in Northern California to survey steelhead salmon populations. CAP Radio's Manola Sequeira spent some time with a team tasked with counting the salmon's nests. I'm with three researchers who started their search at sunrise. For the next few hours, they'll jet around the river on a motorboat, sometimes stepping out to wade into the water on the lookout for reds. A red is essentially a nest that a salmon builds to lay their eggs. and then they are fertilized in there in the gravel. That's Molly Ogaz. She's a biologist at Kramer Fish Sciences, and she's driving the boat. She says there's been a lot of work done on this river to restore habitat for Chinook and steelhead. Both populations have struggled to spawn amid years of drought conditions and damage to their ecosystem. It's really important to be able to evaluate the effectiveness of that restoration and kind of see if tweaks or changes need to be made and also get an idea for what the population actually is. Megan Wedgworth is a senior biological technician who's also assisting in the search. She says their work could help researchers better understand the relationship these fish have with changes to the river and what people can do to ensure their survival. I think it says a lot that these fish are so well adapted and so resilient to disruption or disturbance that if they start to decline that there is something that's been thrown off balance from what they've historically been doing here. By the end of the day, the researchers count six reds. Ogas says they've been harder to find this year due to turbid river conditions caused by January storms. The team hopes to find more in the coming weeks. For the California Report, I'm Manola Sakaida in Sacramento. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. Paint Care, now with 846 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, 
which bets early on exceptional people making the world better. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And that is the California Report for Thursday, February 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and be careful out there in all this storm weather. Turning to your forecast from the National Weather Service, unsettled weather through Friday is bringing low-elevation snow, wind, and near or below freezing temperatures. Gusty southerly winds into Friday morning will bring difficult driving conditions and downed trees. The Weather Service says up to 18 inches of snow are possible in Nevada City and Grass Valley tonight. The low will be 29 degrees, and south-southeast wind could gust as high as 37 miles per hour. Friday's forecast is for snow showers mainly before 4 p.m., a high near 38, and south wind gusts up to 23 miles per hour. Friday's new snow accumulation is expected to be 3 to 7 inches. Friday night, wind and snow are expected to subside, with a chance of snow showers before 10 p.m. and a low around 26. Tonight in Trekkie and Lake Tahoe, snow heavy at times with a new accumulation of 5 to 9 inches and a low around 12. South wind could gust up to 30 miles per hour. Friday, expect a high near 27, subsiding winds, and new snow accumulation of 5 to 9 inches. Friday night, 1 to 2 inches of snow are likely before 10 p.m., with a low around 14. In Sacramento and Woodland, a wind advisory is in effect until 4 p.m. Friday for the Sacramento Valley, the Delta, and the northern San Joaquin Valley. Tonight, showers and a low around 38. Friday, showers a high near 50 and south wind up to 20 miles per hour, decreasing in the afternoon. Friday night, a chance of showers before 10 p.m., patchy frost and a low around 34. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Next, in her continuing series celebrating Black History Month, KVMR's Julia Jem explores the rich tapestry of churches, schools, and social clubs developed by our county's African-American pioneers. Not only were these institutions safe spaces in an often hostile environment, they demonstrated how the black community was inextricably woven into the fabric of life in Nevada County. I'm Julia Jem. Last week, with the help of local historian Linda Jack, I told the story of the Sanks, a remarkable black family that lived and operated in Nevada County during the mid to late 1800s. This week, I'll be speaking with Linda about the organizations and places of gathering that the black community built in years past. First, I asked her to describe the details of perhaps their most precious foundations, their churches and schools. I know that there was the church that I kind of discussed in the Isaac Sanks piece as well that was collectively put together and took quite a bit of manpower, cost quite a bit of money. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that these organizations, the churches, the schools, the clubs, the uh, Black Masons, they all were organizations that not only provided a home for their members, but also uh, had the secondary effect of kind of demonstrating to the white communities that these folks, even the ones newly, formerly enslaved, were going to participate in the full social and political life of the community. I think they had meaning above and beyond their individual functions. Yeah. But the churches, I think in particular, 
were a place where people could gather safely to uh, worship, to socialize, to launch political efforts, and so forth. And so I think the reason they got established first ahead of some of these other organizations was to kind of be a place where people could deal with their society on a daily basis. So um, they were community efforts. They were funded locally for the most part. And because they shared uh, clergy members, they were sort of uh, their clergy traveled from one church to the other. So church services were not generally done on a daily basis, at least in the rural counties. So that also formed a network because the same bishop or the same pastor would be in Grass Valley and then in Nevada City and then in Marysville and perhaps down in Sacramento. How were those churches funded, especially, you know, the one that I mentioned in the Sanks piece? Do you know any of the details as to how that that worked? I think they put out a subscription, basically, and asked people to donate. In the Nevada City case, well, also in Grass Valley, they had fundraisers, you know, they ladies' auxiliary or equivalent, I don't think it was called that, but uh, came together and had uh, Nevada City, they uh, had an ice cream and cake social and raised funds that way. So I think these were grassroots efforts, mm-hmm. whether individuals also maybe donated equipment and materials, I think that's also a possibility. But they were, I think, ground, you know, from the ground up. I see. And then also, there was a school, correct, that was built adjacent to one of the churches right. in Grass Valley? To both of them. Yeah, oh, to, to both, both Nevada them. City and Grass Valley. The school came later, about 10 years later, and that was really in response to um, California basically uh, segregating its schools. And parents, I think, understood keenly that education was the key for their next generation. So the Grass Valley and Nevada City Schools were also uh, both funded in the community mm-hmm. and built adjacent to or very near, so on the same lot in Grass Valley and on an adjacent lot in Nevada City. Do we know how many students attended each of those schools? Yeah, I, I would say there were relatively small numbers. It varied, of course by year, but I would guess between, you know, maybe 20, 25 students at a time. They were all subjects, geography, math, literature, and in fact, the parents insisted in Grass Valley that their curriculum be the same as the white schools because they really wanted their children to be competitive. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that they were posted in the, the union. Right, yes. The the rankings, sort of first, second, third in their class, that sort of, just uh, along with the white children. So there was no real distinction. I see. And then two other things that I wanted to discuss with you, the first being the colored people's balls. Yes. I was wondering what that was, what it looked like. I think they varied. Sometimes they were held, often they were held uh, in association with a major festival like a celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation or a celebration of um, early on the festivals of freedom, which they came to be called, were on things that we won't even, we wouldn't even think of. Like in January, they celebrated the 
Great Britain's emancipation of the slaves in the West Indies, or in January, the end of the Atlantic slave trade, and in August, the emancipation of the slaves of the West Indies. So these festivals happened all the time, and often they would have a ball associated with a festival. On the other hand, I think sometimes they would just have social events. Sometimes they would be fundraisers for a particular, uh, like during the Civil War, they would have a ball to raise funds for the Sanitary Commission, which took care of wounded soldiers. So I think there were various reasons to hold a ball, but they were, you know, they had uh, dancing, music, sometimes speeches, food, uh, the ladies brought cakes and other kinds of desserts. And they were big events. They were often held at major venues like Hamilton Hall, which was, uh, you know, hosted lots of social engagements. Before we wrapped up, I also prompted Linda to tell me about any other potential groups that contributed to the community. Here's what she had to say. Um, I would just say there's a couple of other organizations that might be worth just mentioning because they were part of this constellation of social and religious and political groups. And that one is called the Lincoln Club. And there were at least two of them, one in Nevada City, one in Grass Valley. And these were a combination, I think, of political and social clubs. They participated in every festival, every parade, you know, every gathering. And they had banners that they displayed when they marched. And I think these were sources of some of the agitation, positive agitation for civil rights. So I think the Lincoln Clubs represented that more political and social combined. The other was that black men were not allowed to join the regular Masons. So there was an organization called the Prince Hall Masons, that's a a person's name, that formed on the East Coast very early in the colonial period. And so we had a lodge, a Prince Hall Mason Lodge in Nevada City. So that was another force for sort of social good work, funding projects and collecting donations and so forth. So I think this, you know, as I said, kind of a constellation of groups and organizations really were kind of a backbone of, of connectedness mm-hmm. throughout Northern California that were probably terribly important to link these rural communities. These were folks who were, through their own interests, and an intent, were demonstrating to the larger white community that they were part of this bigger society and their cultural, religious, and, and political engagement was really part of this American story, part of our local story. They weren't just individuals. They were part of this larger, you know, sort of network. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Wallace Stevens published his famous poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, 105 years ago in 1917. I'm friendly with many poets on social media, and it's common for them, when referring to current events, to post a relevant poem or fragment. Yesterday, three lines from the Stevens poem were circulating. It was evening all afternoon. It was snowing, and it was going to snow. 
I love knowing so many poets, but sometimes I wish the internet and also television had never been invented. I feel polluted by external opinion. I wish I could go outside and have a personal understanding about what the weather was going to do. Then I wouldn't get into this pickle of having heard so much about the coming storm and expecting things to happen that did not, or at least have not yet. Maybe tonight, when you hear me say this on the radio, we'll have four feet of snow. But at the moment, we have a mere dusting on the parked cars and some grouple at the roadsides. Those poor kids who were sure they'd get a snow day have been marched off to school again. As you recall, the only way one can feel disappointed is to have an expectation about something. I am not a farmer. Weather doesn't often factor into my plans. But expecting a big storm, I did tarp up a window that leaks a little, fill my car with gas, make soup, check the candle inventory, and park facing out of the driveway. It began to snow around 3.30 and was furiously, gloriously coming down until 5 when it stopped. I took a before photo of the yard as it got dark. This morning, it looked exactly the same. Staring out my window, I felt so sad robbed even, as though Christmas morning had dawned, but there were no presents. Everywhere I went, my cafe, physical therapy, the post office, people were talking about the prediction and its failure to materialize. Yet. I keep saying yet because now I want to see a huge snowstorm, even more than I did yesterday. I love big weather, but I also hate feeling duped. Everyone knows predicting weather is an inexact science, where the friction comes in, leading some of us to sorrow, disappointment, and exasperation at having been snookered, is in believing what we're told. And those professionals are so believable. The National Weather Service, NOAA, news reporters being blown around live on camera for all to see. I should pay closer attention to the Korean TV show I've been watching, called Forecasting Love and Weather. A cultural politeness infuses the tone of many Korean shows, which I find soothing. Plus, their titles are so often obvious or strange. This one, set in a national weather agency, is extraordinarily silly, but brings up how angry civilians get, not to mention agriculture, transportation, and emergency services, when the forecast doesn't pan out. As they show you, though, things change on a dime. The jet stream does X, the temperature in the South China Sea does Y, and the whole prediction goes straight to heck. It's nobody's fault. So, my friends, repeat after me. It was snowing, and it was going to snow. Maybe. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, February 23rd.
KVMR Community Radio gets support from The Pizza Joint, offering a variety of New York-style pizza specialties prepared with fresh ingredients by the slice or pie, plus salads, pasta, and local beer. Open daily, Commercial Street, Nevada City. ThePizzaJointNC.com This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Friday at 6 for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News.